Hi everyone, this is a Barclay Damon Live broadcast where we discuss all things L&E, labor and employment. I'm Ari, let's dig in. Hi everyone, welcome to All Your EEOC Questions Answered, a one-on-one conversation with the director of the EEOC Buffalo Local Office. I am so excited for the next couple of episodes because as I just mentioned, we are going to have a candid, in-depth conversation with Maureen Kilt, who is the director of the EEOC's Buffalo Local Office. Maureen, thank you so much for joining. Um, I know you're really busy and I know how busy your agency is, so thank you, welcome. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. Of course. To our listeners, for the next couple episodes, Maureen is going to talk with us about a variety of topics, the EEOC's investigatory process, what happens when a charge is received, how employers can respond to the charge, mediation, kind of the whole gamut. But Maureen, before we dig in, I did want to ask you, I asked all of our guests to share a fun fact about themselves, their personal, professional life. So I wanted to put you on the spot, <laughs> so apologies for that in advance, but um, I know you have something good to tell us, so if you don't mind sharing. <laughs> I have a couple of things I'll share. First okay, of all, uh, before I came to the EEOC, I actually was a small business owner. So in my previous life, um, I had a business on Elmwood Avenue. I had two businesses on Elmwood Avenue. I had a dressmaking shop, and I had mm-hmm. a children's clothing store called ABC Kids. Wow. ABC is the initials of my first three born children. Oh, um, and I was in business from 77 until 93 when I went back to school. Um, with That's that really being cool said, money. yeah. Can I ask, did you, so did you design, I know you said you had a dress shop. Did you design and or make the clothes or? Yes. Yeah. Our, oh. our specialty was wedding restoration actually. And really cool. uh, I actually just. Um, made a wedding gown for my daughter who was married over Aww. Memorial Day weekend. Congratulations. So still dabble, still dabble. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So how I got here in a roundabout way was uh, I had a customer and I was having some issues because I my oldest child has Tourette syndrome. Um, and I was having some issues with um, accommodation. And at the time, the ADA was right on the cusp of being passed as a law. And uh, I was telling her the, the issues that I was having. And she said, you need to go talk to my friend um, and, and see what he can do to help you. And I talked to uh, Bruce Goldstein at Bouvier and O'Connor. And we ended up um, being part of a class action lawsuit because um, the, Buffalo Board or, or the Buffalo School Board did not have a 504 coordinator which was re- requirement under the ADA. Um, so I, I was very excited to be part of that because it changed the um, the landscape for um, children with disabilities in the Buffalo public school systems. And that was about 31 years ago. And from there, I, my interest in being a um, an advocate really increased. I used to advocate for kids in school and then I got a job with the federal government and in a weird way ended up in the at the EEOC because I started in treasury and doing what I love the most. Um, so that's that's a little bit of it, uh, some information that a lot of people don't know that yeah, I deal well, with in the legal field. Yes. Well, thanks, Maureen. That's so interesting. And I love that your fun fact was also so meaningful. So Maureen, thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. Let's dig in um, to our listeners. We're kind of going to start with the basics and talk a little bit about the EEOC as an agency, what it is and what it does. 
Maureen, what is the EEOC? Can you tell our listeners and what is the EEOC's mission? The EEOC stands for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and we are the federal agency um, that investigates discrimination in the workplace. Uh, We were formed in uh, 1965 as a result of the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So we investigate uh, when people come to us to see whether or not there's been a violation in the law with regards to discrimination. Yes, and I think a lot of our listeners, Maureen, are familiar with the agency. Can you tell us specifically just a general rundown, because I know there are a few, but what laws does the EEOC enforce? Okay. <laughs> we <Loaded> enforce, <laughs> nope, lots. Yes. <laughs> we, we enforce Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act that covers um, age, race, sex, national origin, religion, Um, And we um, also enforce the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, which obviously covers uh, disabilities. Uh, Under Title VII, we also enforce the Equal Pay Act. That's a little act that a lot of people don't realize is actually out there. So that's equal pay according to race and sex. Another fact that a lot of people don't understand or realize that it's out there. We also enforce the genetic information uh, Non-Discrimination Act, which protects uh, people's medical information from disclosure. It's kind of like HIPAA, but not really because we don't enforce HIPAA. Um, But uh, employers can't ask for um, um, a long history of information that may reveal something that could be genetic in nature. Um, Because back in the day, uh, that was used as a screening tool for a lot of employers. Uh, We also enforce the uh, Age Discrimination and Employment Act um, that protects uh, individuals uh, over the age of 40. Um, And um, the little difference between Title VII and the other laws in the Age Discrimination uh, Act is you have to have 15 employees to get coverage under the EEOC, and you have to have 20 employees in order to have coverage under the ADEA. I'm glad you pointed that out, Maureen, because you must have been reading my mind because I was going to ask because we have, you know, those those things, you know, those things are important. Those threshold um, requirement issues that do come up in practice a lot. So, yes. So, Maureen, um, you talked a little bit about the laws that the EEOC enforces. Can you tell us a little bit about how the EEOC enforces those laws? Well, we do that through. Uh, taking uh, charges of discrimination, uh, and that's a whole process in itself, and we determine uh, whether or not there's been a violation of the law. We can do that in many ways. We can do, uh, we can offer mediation for the parties to see if they can come to some sort of resolution before it gets to enforcement, Um, and that uh, allows the parties to talk about what happened. This is not where you put your evidence in and and you point the finger. This is a a venue for everybody to reach a mutual agreement without having to go through all of the other rigmarole. Uh, And I always tell everybody and encourage everybody to go to mediation and say, mediation is like Vegas. What happens in mediation stays in mediation. Okay, (laughs) so whatever is revealed there can't be used against you, either the charging party or the respondent, once you go to investigation, because there's a firewall between mediation and investigation. Once we um, once that has occurred, and let's say it's not successful, we then go into an investigation, um, and that could be as uh, I think uh, uh, everybody is 
pretty aware of. Um, we can ask for information. We may just ask for a position statement. We'll ask for a request for information that is more itemized, detailed information that we're looking for. Um, we can do on-sites. Um, yes. We haven't done that in a couple of years because of pandemic, but uh, I'm yes. sure that will be returning sooner rather than later. Uh, we've been doing visual uh, virtual on-sites um, oh, over the last year, and that's been interesting. Um, okay. We can also do what we call a fact-finding conference, which is my, well, I really like to do both a fact-finding conference and or an on-site um, because they're, you find out a lot of information about a respondent and a charging party when you engage in those two particular tools. Um, so those are some of the ways that we we can move forward to investigate. Great. Thanks for uh, that overview, Maureen. And we'll definitely talk about those topics in a little more detail as the episodes uh, progress this week and next week. But um, before we dive into a little bit more substance, uh, Maureen, just briefly, could you tell us just a little bit about how the EEOC is organized? I know you and I talked about that a little bit offline before we jumped on today, but I think um, employers, business owners, attorneys are always very curious, you know, the organizational structure of the organization. Well, when the EEOC Buffalo office first opened um, over 50 years ago, um, we were actually a district office, and that changed once we started dealing with jurisdictional issues. Um, and we are what we call a local office. So the local office, uh, we cover all of New York State except for um, the lower counties, Orange County, um, right. all around in there. Well, we also do not cover Long Island and Manhattan. That's covered by our New York district office. So our district is composed of four offices. The Manhattan office in New York, which is the district, the Boston office, which is an area office because they cover not just um, Massachusetts, but Connecticut, Vermont, Maine, all of those, New Hampshire. They cover all of those states as well. And then we have an office in Newark, um, and, New and New Jersey is divided up into two different offices. The Newark office is part of our district. It's a high population state, so that's why that's right. uh, set up that way. So we're a local office, and um, that means that uh, our office is set up a little different from like an area or a district office. So um, in a local office, um, the director wears a lot of hats. <laughs> When there's a lot more employees in an area office or a district office um, because it's set up that way. Um, so, for example, there is uh, no individual who we deem as a supervisory investigator who watches and, and, and kind of is a liaison between the director and the investigators. I play that role. And then we have a supervisor who is a liaison with headquarters to get updates. I play that role. Um, and they also have an IT person assigned to them. I play that role. So I wear a lot of hats as an air, as a local director. And Certainly it's interesting. Yeah, the IT piece in particular. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's interesting. It's, it's a challenge. I'm learning a lot. Um, okay. So that's how the offices are, are set up uh, across the country. I mean, there are some offices that... Phoenix, for example, that covers Denver and states that are less populated, like Montana, right. um, Wyoming. So they all report to like one office. Some of them report to Seattle um, because there's 
the populations are so small that they don't, you know, they, they don't even have a, any EOC or a state and local to, uh, right. to complain to. Right. Thanks. That's so helpful, Maureen. I'm, I'm really glad you gave us that explanation because I think it's a little confusing that it's a local, you know, there are local offices, but obviously the EEOC is a national agency. So I think that that lends a lot of helpful context. So thank you. <laughs> so Maureen, let's dig into it. Let's start with charges of discrimination. The first question I know that employers have, business owners have is, how does the EEOC decide which charges or complaints it will investigate? Or is there any sort of screening process? Um, or do you accept every charge or complaint and investigate every charge? What's what's that initial process look like? It it's 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 big. <laughs> so um, people go online now and they file a charge through our portal system, which I'm sure yeah. everybody's familiar and frustrated with including us. So you're not alone. Um, it's a work in, pro in, in progress. Uh, so people file inquiries um, online and they uh, attempt to make an appointment. Um, once they have an appointment, it's assigned to an investigator um, and the investigator does an interview and we check for things. They, they get screened. So everybody gets screened. Um, we do jurisdiction is there enough employees? Um, is it a timely uh, uh, allegation? Are there witnesses? Is the individual credible? Um, you know, we, we do have people who are frequent filers, um, you know, some 60, 70 yes. inquiries a year. And after a while, um, you know, we, we know who they are and we have local judges that have said you can't file with us so yeah. so we're aware and so we do kind of screen out with regards to those kinds of issues um but That's if somebody isn't yeah oh, if somebody's insistent on a charge they can have a charge they're entitled to two things under the law one is a charge and one is a notice of right to sue that doesn't mean you always get a full investigation because again as i said earlier if if the criteria or the jurisdictional issues aren't met um we would close that uh, charge on intake uh, because it we just don't have enough to move forward. Um, once we do take a charge, uh, I review every single charge that comes through this office myself. Um, so I take a look at that and I determine what the next steps are going to be. Um, sometimes those cases go to mediation if I think that's a, that parties are willing and open to that and that they want to, um, I think that that might be a good resolution for everybody, um, but some are not um, good for mediation. Um, usually cases that may be class cases, things along those natures, you, know, you don't want to send a mediation because mediation is usually between the two parties. If we think that there are more harm parties, we can't negotiate on behalf of other individuals who we think may be identified as harmed. Yes, that makes sense, Maureen. And I'm glad you brought up mediation because we'll definitely talk about that. And that's really interesting what you said about the screening process, because I think a lot of our listeners, employers, business owners, aren't necessarily aware that that process exists. And, you know, I think that's obviously, I know that the agency is just trying to be efficient because, you know, if you don't have the threshold number of employees as a business, then you're not going to be subject to whatever the particular law is. Yeah, it's interesting, Maureen, because we have talked about that on the podcast before. And 
I think it would be comforting for our listeners to know that um, obviously the EEOC exists for a specific purpose, has a specific mission, but you know has also procedures in place to screen out charges or complaints that may not be legitimate. Exactly, because also what everybody seems to forget is um, we we advocate in the way that we help somebody file a charge, but that's where our advocacy stops. We're neutral fact finders, um, right. and I have to remind charging parties about that all the time because they do come to us and they say, you need to help us, and, you know, we can only help them so much. Like I said, we, we will go through their allegations. We'll see if there's something that we can uh, draft a charge on, and that's where our uh, advocacy stops, and that's when we become neutral. So we are neutral fact finders. We look at what an employer has to say and what a charging party has to say, and then we determine whether or not there's been a violation of the law. And again, I, I think uh, on both sides, they have a tendency to forget that's what our role is. Yes, I definitely agree with you, and I'm glad you brought that up, Maureen, because you know we are often advising our clients because it can be confusing to navigate if you're a business owner and it's the first time you've been named in a charge. You know what is the EEOC? What's its role? And that's something we always try to stress. You know the EEOC is a governmental agency that's really just investigating whether or not these allegations have any merit. And you know they're not employee side, they're not employer side. They are a neutral. <laughs> body. So I'm glad you brought that up for our listeners, because that's something we always like to stress. Because, you know, I think on both sides, sometimes it could be frustrating. You know, both sides are advocating for a particular position, and you guys are really just the go-between. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So Maureen, one thing I wanted to bring up, and I, I want to get this straight, because this has come up a lot. And I, I remember back when I was a baby lawyer, seeing a charge like that looked like this and being like, I don't understand what this means. I remember, um, you know, I probably went to Rosemary Enright, who you, you know, have worked with, who probably explained it to me and who the, our listeners know, because she's been on the podcast before and filled in for me when I was on PTO. But um, an employer gets a charge of discrimination and the charge states that there's a complaint filed with the New York State Division of Human Rights as well, which our listeners by and large part probably know is kind of like the EEOC state equivalent, an, a similar agency organized under the New York State Human Rights Law that investigates complaints filed with the Division of Human Rights. But if you could explain um, what is the relationship between the two agencies? Because I think this is this is confusing for um, employers and employees to kind of wrap their, their heads around. It's very confusing, um, <laughs> and I totally understand this question and why you would ask it. Um, so the EEOC and New York State Division of Human Rights, we have a reciprocal agreement. That means they have a contract with the federal government in order to investigate on our behalf. So uh, when people go to the EEOC and or New York State Division of Human Rights, we have to determine who's going to do that investigation because there's only one investigation. Um, and uh, usually what we look at is who got it first. <laughs> and whoever got it first is going to follow through on that investigation. Or okay. if somebody's farther ahead in, a, in an investigation, obviously we want them to take the lead um, and move forward on that. Um, because it's just more efficient. Um, right. So right. that's because, you know, you have individuals and how we explain to them is you can't have two bites of the same apple. So it's either or. 
it's considered a joint filing. So when you get that EEOC charge that lists New York State Division of Human Rights on the top, that just means it's a joint filing. They're on notice, hey, we have a charge, we're investigating, and vice versa. Um, and when the EEOC completes its investigation, we, we move forward on that. When New York State uh, completes their investigation, um, they submit their information to our district office in Manhattan for review. They have to have, they, they're going to get paid for doing that investigation because of that contract. Um, right. uh, so that's where that comes into play. And if individuals are unhappy about the result of their investigation with Division of Human Rights, they can do a, uh, like an appeal uh, with the district office and ask for a substantial weight review, which means our, our Holly, who is our state and local um, coordinator, will take a look at those documents and determine whether or not we agree or disagree with their findings. But it's it's a joint relationship. Okay. And I love that you said you can only have one bite of the apple. So mm -hmm. basically important for charging parties or complainants, employees, and employers to keep in mind that if you get a charge that says that, Chances are you're going to be, it's, there's going to be one investigation. <laughs> exactly. And it, the new, it, I don't want to say that you don't necessarily need to worry about the New York State Division of Human Rights complaint, but you will not be independently contacted by somebody from the division as well as somebody from the EEOC. Well, you might. Okay. But <laughs> if you are, then you need to let us know. Right. So you need to contact your investigator Very, yeah. or you can <laughs> contact me and say, Maureen, I've already answered this charge with New York State Division of Human Rights, and usually attorneys will send me a copy of the answer right. to to the state, or and you know at that point we'll delete that as a duplicate. Right. Uh, okay. So yes, so no. If you do, let us know. We'll also determine who had it first, depending on again how far we are in, into an investigation, how far they are in in, a, in an investigation as well. Understood. Understood. So Maureen, why would um, an individual file a charge with one agency versus the other? I think some of our listeners are probably wondering, why does this matter? Why would I put the EEOC over the Division of Human Rights if you're in New York or if you're in Massachusetts or Connecticut, the state equivalents, because we do have um, offices there. But I guess the question to you, Maureen, is, you know, why does it, why does it matter? <laughs> well, I'm going to say, first of all, it's a matter of what somebody knows. So they may not be aware that there's a state agency or they may not be aware that there's a federal agency. So they go to where they're, where they're familiar or where right. someone has directed them. Hey, my friend told me to go here. We had a lot of that. Um, the second thing is a lot of times they will try and file with both state right. and the Fed. And that's also uh, things that we look for when we do our screening process that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, there are some advantages in going to the state sometimes because they cover a broader range of things than we do. For example, um, domestic violence um, yes. is specifically addressed in state law when it yes. is not addressed in federal law. When we're talking about ADA issues, the state law is much broader than the EEOC law. So, for example... Yes. Seriously, you can have the flu and you can file a charge with the state and get coverage under under their disability laws where that right. wouldn't fly here. Right. Um, yeah, so oh, things like that. Um, criminal background investigations, we do look at that, but uh, the state's law is so concrete and and 
and good that uh, a lot of times we will refer people to the state if there's there's a criminal background check issue. Um, things along that nature. They also cover housing. Uh, yes. They have a lot of other um, um, areas that can be explored. So if you have a lot of things that you're juggling, sometimes the state is a better a better answer because they can cover more things. Yes. Yes. So basically, New York, if you know, for those listeners who are in New York State, the New York State human rights law does track federal anti-discrimination statutes for the most part, but definitely some broader protections. So I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out, Maureen, because I think if you're thinking of filing a charge or if you're, you know, responding to one, definitely want to be aware of all of these considerations. And like I said, this is a question we get so often representing employers because it's just confusing and they think, you know, oh, oh, do I need to contact the Division of Human Rights? What do I what do I do? So I think this is such good information from the, you know, from the horse's mouth, for lack of a better phrase, which isn't the most eloquent. So <laughs> maybe I should have rephrased that. But no, you know what I, I have no offense to that. Love horses, <laughs> had them. Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. Um, Okay, Maureen. So uh, before we break for the episode, I just wanted to talk briefly about, you know, what happens when the EEOC agrees to investigate a charge. And I I know you talked, you touched on this briefly, but basically what I'm getting at is what does the EEOC do or how does the EEOC determine whether a charge is appropriate for mediation, which as most of our listeners know, and we know basically means you wouldn't be responding to the charge via a position statement if you're the employer, but you would engage in this mediation process. So can you tell us a little bit how the EEOC would make that determination? Sure. Um, and again, as I touched on a little bit earlier, um, I review every single charge. So I'm I'm the decision maker as to what goes to mediation, what does not go to mediation. Um, some allegations are so outrageously bad that I may determine that this would not be good for mediation. Um, I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but it it, it does happen. Uh, so that might be a criteria as to why I would not send it to mediation. Um, if we think that it's going to be a class, if we have already, the, the uh, charging party has provided us information. It's not just me, it's this person, this person, and this person, then that is not a case that we would send to mediation necessarily Um, because again we don't want to resolve something or issues with regards to one charging party and not be able to resolve that for others Um, Mm -hmm. and we don't know whether or not those individuals are harmed until we actually do an investigation and at any point even though you're not in mediation if there's a way to settle in investigation that's also an option that's open to you um, so if it's something that I'm not comfortable sending in to mediation because we just don't have enough and I have a feeling that there may be other individuals that are harmed, mm-hmm. I will keep it in investigation and we can revisit that down the road. And we have sent some cases to mediation once we've gotten into that investigation. So that might be a reason why I would not send to mediation. I mean, we're, we're sending a lot of cases to mediation at this point. Um, The problem is trying to get the parties to agree. That's the biggest thing is trying to get the parties to agree. And and what I would say to both charging parties and respondents and have is there's nothing to lose by going to mediation. If you can resolve it before you have to dump all of this documents, resources, money into a full-fledged investigation and you can resolve it quickly, 
through mediation, mm-hmm. I think it's a uh, it's a win win situation for both sides. Yeah, Maureen, and that's I'm glad you brought that up because you know obviously representing employers in terms of responding to charges of discrimination. A lot of times we're asked, well, you know, I don't think I did anything wrong. Why would I participate? I don't think that we're going to be close. I don't, you know, I don't, I, there's no way we could possibly reach an agreement. And our response is always, well, as you pointed out, number one, you really have nothing to lose. Number two, obviously we're going to spend a lot of time and resources responding in a position statement, which we'll talk about later or, and request for information, which we'll talk about later. It's, you know, it's time, it's resources, compiling the information, putting everything together. So I think, you know, we absolutely agree. I mean, there's, what is there to lose? You know, and and, and as you know, there's massaging, I think, on both sides. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And what I, I wanted to ask Maureen, um, and I know the answer to this, just because I have worked, of course, with some of your, um, the people who are in um, the mediation unit and your investigators and things like that. But I know you touched briefly earlier, EEO, the EEOC is a neutral party. What is the EEOC's role in mediation and who within the EEOC conducts the mediation? Okay. Um, as I said earlier, there's a firewall between investigation, and in, otherwise known as enforcement, and mediation. Yes. Okay. Um, so your investigators have no idea what happens in that mediation um, process. Um, we have a mediator our new mediator who's been on the job since september i believe is jeremy boyd he's a former investigator of mine he's very good he's very thorough um and he uh he's the new mediator and he gets the parties together and sees whether or not they can reach some sort of agreement that they can both be happy and live with it it is it could be financial agreement. It could be an apology. It could be, um, I mean, all, it, it, mediation, you can really negotiate all kinds of really inventive and different things. Um, returning somebody to work. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's a great medium because it, it, you can be very inventive to get everybody to the table and to agree on something. So there's no, there's nothing set in stone, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and if an apology and returning somebody to work is what you need to move forward, then you can negotiate that mediation and, and that's great. And the mediator is definitely neutral and he just tries to make sure that he can get the parties to agree on something. Yeah. And we've worked and I've worked with Jeremy before. I agree. He's great. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting because you're so right. Sometimes an employer and a even, an, you know, an employer, a respondent, a charging party will come to mediation and, you know, an employer will just want like a good reference or excuse me, an employee will just want a good reference exactly. or, you know, a, a recommendation. And exactly. that really resolves it. So so important such good advice. Um, I just want to close with this, Maureen. Um, do you have any tips other than what we discussed for um, employers who've agreed to participate in mediation? I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> so is there anything that you can say to our listeners who are on the employer side of things, mm-hmm. business owners with respect to participating in mediation? 
again, I, I would remind them this isn't about pointing the finger and who's at fault. It's, it's something that I share with both sides, but um, especially with employers, because as you said earlier, employers want to say, oh, you know, we didn't do anything. I don't understand. Um, this isn't about finding fault. It's about trying to uh, come to a resolution. It's also um, as I have explained many times when I've been out in the field doing outreach with employers, it's also a liability. And so you need to look at the bigger picture. This is a nice way to get both parties on the same page and resolve it before, again, there's this large outlay of time and, and money to sometimes get the same result that you could have reached in, you know, one or two mediation sessions before. Yes. It, it, it's short, it's sweet, it's a, it's a resolution in both parties, mostly for the, for the most part, can walk away happy and satisfied with, with the results. Um, and, and that's a, like I said, that's a win-win for everybody. So employers really need to go in and say, okay, what is it that I can do? Um, to make my employee happy or my former employee happy, resolve this issue. It's a great takeaway. Hey, next time I need to make sure that we're better at terminating an employee, at disciplining employee, whatever it is that the employee is alleging. Um, so it's a great learning experience for employers as well because it's an eye-opener. And if they're represented by counsel, counsel can say, okay, after this, let's sit down. Let's talk about how we don't get here again. <laughs> and right. that's a really good lesson. Um, and I like those kinds of results because I don't want to see repeat allegations against the same employers over and over again. Um, if yes. it's a, if you take it as a learning experience and you grow from it, I think that's a positive thing that employers need to look at. And you're going to have happy employees if you do that as well. And, you know, I am a big proponent of happy employees. My mother always said you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So if you have a, a right. good outlook and you're always striving to make employee morale good and you can learn from this situation to, to give better morale to your employees, then you, the chances are you won't be visiting us again. Um, so yes. you need to look at it in those terms. Very, very good points, uh, Maureen. And I think one thing that we always stress too is try to have an open mind. You know, I know it's, again, for a lot of employers, it's their first time and hopefully only time that they've been named in a charge of discrimination. And there is kind of a, I think, a bit of like suspicion or maybe skepticism yes. in terms of what the employee or former employee might be looking for. Um, so we, I'm glad you said, you know, keep an open mind, the EEOC is neutral, try to find a resolution and just really just, we got to see how it goes. <laughs> That's what exactly. we say. So. Exactly. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been absolutely great. Super informative. Um, you know, I'm excited. We'll pick back up next week where we left off, but um, anything that you'd like to close with that you think we haven't talked about in terms of the agency and the mediation process or just anything maybe I forgot to mention? <laughs> just really briefly, don't send mail. <laughs> don't send mail. Put everything on the portal. If you're having a problem with the portal, reach out. If we can resolve it, we can. If not, we'll we'll figure a way 
to do that. If you're filing a charge and you're a respondent employer or you're a respondent attorney, send it to our fax machine. But don't send stuff in the mail. Um, we're, we're going completely virtual. So it's like um, I what I remind some attorneys when, when we talk and we laugh and I say, you're not going to send your filing to the judge. He wants it in. He wants it electronically. Right. So, Right. Unless or he asks e-filing. for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, yes. you're filing everything electronically. Think of us like that. Think of us I like the that. IRS. You're filing online. You're not also <laughs> right. sending it in the mail. I don't yes. need the duplicate. If you're not sure if we got it, call me. I, people will tell you I always pick up the phone, and if I don't, I will return your call. I'm, I'm really famous for that. I will yeah. return your call. Yes, I can attest to that. And also, I'm pretty sure because I had a, an issue with the portal – when you get the, if you're a respondent, at least you get the information. It does give you like an email address to email if you're having yes. issues with the portal. Yes. So, tech support. I, yes, absolutely. Not and sometimes we even have to go around tech support and figure out what's going on. I did that yesterday. We'll figure it out. Like I said, ARC is, is it's new and, and wonderful. Yes. And, and challenging. Everything's a work in progress these days. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank so. you so much, Maureen. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, tune in next week. Maureen and I will continue our discussion. We'll talk a little bit more about mediation, but mostly about the investigatory process and employer position statements. If you have employees, if you're interested on the topic, you definitely don't want to miss it. Tune in. The Labor Employment Podcast is available on BarclayDamon.com, YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like, follow, share, and continue to listen. Thanks. This material is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a legal opinion, and no attorney-client relationship has been established or implied. Thanks for listening.